0: So again, the the usual format for these Wednesday morning uh, uh, discussions uh, and uh, explorations of themes is that, uh, typically I'll give a talk and we'll have some discussion. I think today I'm gonna also do an exercise that'll involve people talking to each other for a little while, okay? So that'll be probably uh, maybe in about 25 30 minutes we'll see And then we leave some time for a discussion at the end so again want to welcome my name is donald rothberg and i'm going to be continuing uh, a series that i started uh, actually several months ago which is a series on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind and this is uh, a theme i'm working on a book on the topic and I'm, as it were, bringing everyone here into my creative process. You are part of my creative process. <laughs> and, and that uh, I'm working on the book almost every morning. I am on sabbatical, but I wanted to stay teaching some here on Wednesdays and to uh, talk about some of the themes about which I'm writing to uh, both uh, share the process with you and also benefit from your insights and your creativity so and you can bring in stories if you have some story that you think might be good in the book you can um, be in the book you can change you can have your your name as it is you can change your name possibly change your gender (laughs) that's up to you (laughs) if you go in the book change a few things i don't know um That's up to you. Um, So this is actually the ninth talk that I've given on this topic. And so I wanted to review how many people have been to uh, at least one of the talks in the series. So, and how many people have not been to any yet that are in the series. So that may be about one third. And so I'll say a little bit about the topic. So people who are, who have been to the topic, there's a, a familiar practice that you do when I review a little bit, which is if you become judgmental about me reviewing so much, you have very good tools to use that you've been instructed on. OK, so, so whatever's happening, there's an opportunity to learn. That's the, that's the philosophy. OK, so I'm using the word judgmental mind to point to ways that we become judgmental. We can be judgmental towards ourselves. We can be judgmental towards others. We can uh, be judgmental in the tone of our voice. We can uh, be judgmental about people for all sorts of things. Sometimes we think they've done something wrong or bad. Sometimes we're judgmental towards people because we don't like them. Uh, you know. And I try to use this concept of being judgmental in a broad way. We can also be judgmental because of social conditioning and be judgmental towards a group of people because of all the familiar ways that there are social hierarchies of uh, race or gender or class or sexual orientation or age or physical appearance or abilities or educational level. There are a lot of them, right? We, you know, virtually every society that I've studied has some kind of social hierarchy and those inform our judgments as well. So what we're actually interested in doing is identifying the judgmental mind and transforming it actually on all those levels. So it's ambitious in that way and really working with the judgmental mind. And so, I typically uh, differentiate the judgmental mind because of its nature of being reactive. You know, there's a charge, right? There's something, there's an edge, there's a charge, there's something, there's a tone of voice that's like that. And there's a difference between being judgmental and just actually seeing something and making some kind of evaluation or assessment. That, for example, I'm a teacher. It's very important for me to see, oh, that student is deficient in this way. That student needs this, right? And I can see that and not be judgmental, right? I can also see the exact same thing and be judgmental and probably and therefore not a very good teacher. And the student will know I'm being judgmental immediately, right? And will say, you know, and if the person has a choice, it may be the end of the relationship. (laughs) If the person doesn't have a choice, which is often the case, (laughs) then we got problems, (laughs) but, and so forth. So does that make some sense? And so what I think is that the judgment is actually complex. It's made up often we observe something, that person is doing this, or I did this, I didn't, you know, I promised to do this for this person, and I didn't do it. And I observe that, I have an evaluation, that's not so good, and I can either be really judgmental, really harsh often towards myself or another, or sometimes I can just notice it, but it can be... uh, the observation, the evaluation, as with the teaching example, can come with compassion or care, right? And so in Buddhist language, I say that the judgmental mind is characterized by reactivity, by this tendency to, in this case, typically to push away almost automatically or compulsively. And so this is a very major tendency in our lives, isn't it, right? That we often are judgmental of ourselves. We often are judgmental towards others. It, makes, uh, it can, in extreme cases, lead to depression. You'll probably find in a lot of cases of depression, judgmental mind present. It can lead to very difficult relationships, right? A lot of the difficulties of relationships are when one person is judgmental towards another, or sometimes mutual. Right? Um, sometimes both, or sometimes, if you look at a relationship where there are maybe the most difficulties, often both people are judgmental towards each other. Right? And it can be it can be that way. And then we also can see that the judgmental mind can be there with a lot of suffering. Basically, can be there with um, interpersonal conflict, individual uh, depression, sadness, distress, it can be there uh, in many social conflicts. One of my questions uh, for my my book is how many quotations I will have from the presidential election. (laughs) There are a lot of examples of judgmental mind in the presidential primaries and now the presidential election and i'm thinking oh i want my book to be read 10 years from now they won't be so interested in what mr trump says or what hillary clinton says or whatever so um so that's one of my decision points for my book because there are many examples (laughs) okay so um, have a good sense of what this is, the judgmental mind and why it's important. Sometimes we, we give examples. Maybe if you can think of a one-sentence judgment that you've experienced in the last day or two or three, anyone want to give an example? And I'll repeat them. Maybe just, if you can, in just one or two sentences, you know, just of how you were judgmental any, uh, towards yourself or towards others. Anyone want to give an example? Please. You, to listen to a word I say. you never listen to a word I say. <laughs> right, and uh, one is—it's interesting because you can hear, you can look for the judgment in the tone of voice, and there also can be a tendency in the judgmental mind to exaggerate. Never. Every time you hear the word never, always, what are some other ones? Uh, those are, those, there's a very good chance this judgmental mind, please. You don't understand me. You don't understand me. Now, interesting also, said with a tone of vo- a certain tone of voice, very judgmental, you don't understand me. You know, could, we could imagine probably 10 different tones of voice. But we also might uh, actually even say that and it might not be judgmental. Because the reactivity is, you know, it's interesting. We can know it in the tone of voice, or the energy in the body. And we, we are very sensitive to being judged, right? We know that we are very sensitive beings. We can really interpret that tone of voice. So people sometimes think, oh, I didn't say anything, but the tone of voice was like that, right? Yeah. Maybe one more example, please. You never listen to anything, like that, so you should talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> You never listen to anything I say. So again, we can see the um, tendency of exaggeration. Good, good example. Now, one other thing just to clarify, I've been emphasizing examples of judgmental mind that are more negative. OK, but I think the judgmental mind can also be positive, that we can be judgmental and think something is really good. Because in Buddhist language, what's characteristic of judgmental mind is reactivity. And we know in Buddhist psychology, we are reactive in two main ways: we either push away compulsively, or we grab hold compulsively. And so we don't pay so much attention to the positive judgments because they're not so obviously connected with suffering. But I think you know an example of a positive judgment would be, you know, uh, I'm so cool. <laughs> I wasn't of course referring to myself, but just an example. Uh, but I'm so cool, right? And that would be that's kind of reactive. It's grabbing hold. And I, I think it's judgmental in the definition. But mostly what I tend to are more the negative ones, because they're more obviously like, connected with suffering. But the positive ones actually are important when we go deeply. and you know, because it's it's also there's actually when we are negative towards another in a judgmental way. We're usually positive towards ourselves in a judgmental way. It's just more hidden, you know. So it's an interesting one, right? So those are a few details. So the the approach that we've used over these months is to develop a number of tools to explore the judgmental mind and to transform it. I'll just be very brief and then we'll go to the the subject I want to bring in today is how we work with the judgmental mind in our communications with others. How we, because mostly what I've explored so far, is how we do more inner work with the judgmental mind. So starting today, we'll look a little bit more at how we work with the judgmental mind when we're interacting with people, communicating with people, when things are a little more complex, fast-moving, and challenging. (laughs) When you get something coming at you, bam, right? And you say, okay, how do I skillfully respond, right? Not so easy. So so far, we've mostly looked at working with the judgmental mind as a kind of inner practice, something we do more on our own. And so we can do a lot of things. We can, the first practice is mindfulness of judgmental mind, just to notice when it's happening. You can go through the day and say, oh, I I was judgmental, or that person was judgmental. When you first study the judgmental mind, and you start being mindful, it can be shocking, because you notice how much of the day this is happening. And so I often say, be very careful not not to add a further judgment, oh, I'm so judgmental, there's so many judgments. Okay, that I call stealth judgment because it's a judgment about how many judgments there are. So be careful with that because it's it is a little shocking when you notice. You notice just so much happening and it's just uh, happening so much of the day. You drive, drivers are what they are, you know, you can judge the drivers, you can judge this, you can judge that and you'll notice. So, So the first tool is mindfulness, just noticing when they're there. And we can be mindful in a few different ways. One is just noting this is happening. Another way of being mindful is to when you're maybe meditating and there's a judgment, to feel what it's like in the body, to notice the emotions, to stay with it for a longer time. You can also study what are the patterns, what tends to trigger my judgment. When I can look back At the day, and say, Oh, I was judgmental, what happened? And I can say, Oh, this was the trigger. So we study the examples of the judgmental mind. And I have found it very important, you know, in working with people on this, uh, which I've been doing for about uh, 14 years. And I've had groups every month. They come to all these judgmental people come to my house. (laughs) And they leave smiling, not judgmental, (laughs) no. Um, some of them do, <laughs> um, but we, um, <clears throat> what we find is that, uh, when you start going into looking at judgments, it can be sometimes painful. And so we need to do other practices which help with balance. So we do what we call heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and other practices that can help us be more balanced with the investigation. And I, I won't talk so much about those, but those are very important. I think anyone who's looking carefully at judgmental mind, I recommend having at least 10 minutes a day of one of those heart practices because sometimes it's, it's challenging. And, they, and so we also develop, again, we develop the mindfulness, the loving-kindness, the compassion, and so forth. We develop what I call awakened qualities, and in a way the transformation of the judgmental mind occurs in two main ways. First way, as we go deeply into the judgment, we see it more clearly, and we can transform it. And that's what I've talked about several of the weeks. The second main way we transform the judgmental mind is more indirect. We basically just spend more and more time with awakened qualities, and we have more of a sense that this is who I am that I am actually most deeply love and wisdom and compassion, and something in us starts shifting. And I find both ways are important. You know, We need both actually. We need to see the judgments clearly, but we also need to develop these awakened, these awakened qualities. So for the rest of the uh, morning, I want to talk about how we start bringing out this practice from it being an inner practice to our interactions with others in the world, Uh, and particularly looking at how we speak and communicate, how we work with uh, challenging situations. And I'll be exploring this, I think, today and next time, and maybe further time as well. Okay, And um, I thought I would begin with a, a quotation I like about the importance of no matter how deeply you go in an inside way, in an inner, with inner practice, you have to make it real in your life. Right? And so the quotation I have is from Fats Domino, a musician. He says, it's not how far out you go, but how you bring it home. OK? So that's, that's our philosophy. Okay, okay. So uh, the first, the first way that we. So he's a famous uh, jazz musician. So, uh, so that was a little bit of American slang, sorry, but it was about really about uh, if I could say, it's um, you can go, you can get go very deeply in inner work, but you have to make it real in daily life. That's really the idea here. Okay, so um, one way that we. We do this as we start to bring the inner practices into the flow of daily life. So we start to bring mindfulness into our meetings. One of the techniques that I use, I'm at a meeting, and I do sometimes a mindfulness log of my judgments. I have a piece of paper, and I write down my judgmental mind at the meeting. You know? Or I might have just a mindfulness log, say, meeting going well. And I write it down, OK? Getting bored sarcastic, judgmental thoughts developing. (laughs) Write it down. Just be mindful. Just know what's happening. So we can bring the mindfulness into the flow of daily life. We can also sometimes do the heart practices. You can do, um, if you're, you know, one practice that I do, I've been doing, I think I've told you, I've been doing when I drive, I've been doing a practice of generosity when driving. The radical practice. (laughs) Right? But what it means is I you know, within limits I try to give people someone okay, that person really wants to cut in. Okay, yes, please take this space. <laughs> so and, and sometimes judgmental mind appears while driving. Has anyone ever had that occur? <laughs> okay. There have been you know, there I think maybe in the bookstore there are several books on meditation while driving, right? <laughs> you know, I think there's one called Road Sage. <laughs> you <laughs> can, can look at that. I think Sylvia did Sylvia do that? I think so. Okay, and um, and so one practice I do is if sometimes if uh, if I get judgmental just for a moment, driving, I do a moment of forgiveness practice, You're right on the spot. You can do that. You can bring the inner practices in. You can bring uh, loving kindness, compassion. Again, you want to. Not be uh, have people run over you, so to speak. <laughs> but um, still, to do inner practices in the midst of daily life, at meetings, with partners, with friends, just to bring the inner practices in. A lot of the inner practices that I gave you one, one can bring these in. Um, <clears throat> start with the easier ones. Start with the easier situations. And build up your tools. Build up the mindfulness you know, at meetings where you're not active, you know, in other, in situations like that. And start with simpler situations because gradually we want to bring our mindfulness, our loving kindness, our compassion into more and more fast moving and complex situations. Okay. Now, when we go to the area of communication, there are a lot of areas that we can focus on. And in many ways, I'll be presenting a uh, version of how to work with what we sometimes call wise speech or right speech or skillful speech, which is a very important area, as you p- probably know. It's one of the eight areas of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right? So it's interesting. I always think, okay, sometimes we have the idea, but that uh, you know, at the time of the Buddha, the Monks and nuns were just meditating all the time, really quiet, so why do they have noble Eightfold Path One of the inst- main areas of instruction is on speaking weren 't they just silent all the time but actually, maybe if you uh, if you ever go to a monastery, you see they t- talk a lot right although <laughs> well, there 's a lot of talking in monasteries, and you know if you actually read the old text, the suttas, you 'll find that the the monks, particularly, were always being invited to dinner parties, very, very often, and and they had to, uh, you know, they had to go to dinner parties and engage, and they were talking, you know, and you actually find the Buddha having reports of some places where actually there were difficulties in speech, where people were angry at each other, where there were conflicts, and people were not being skillful with their speech. So it's a major area, you know, a very important area, and. Um, I think what we'll, lo- what we'll do is look at several different areas of speech and, and I'll be inviting you and I'll give some exercises that we can do in the next week. Hopefully, we can come back next week and say how things were. I'm going to give some exercises. So there are a few different, uh, few different areas. The area I'm going to focus on today is looking at our, our views. A lot of what happens, our views, our opinions, our ideas of things, of how things should be, because a lot of what comes up with the judgmental mind is that we get attached to our views. Has anyone ever been attached to a view? It looks like about maybe twenty, well, twenty percent of the group, so have raised their hands. But the others, I saw, as I said, as people, those hands were slowly going up. How, okay, if I ask again, how many people have sometimes have attachment to views? Okay, okay, this. I think that's more accurate. <laughs> okay, so uh, that's what we'll look at. There also are a lot of important ways that and another area that I'll focus on today is the quality of listening. You know, what, if you'll notice, when you get judgmental with another person, things get polarized and there's no listening. And if you really practice listening carefully, it's a very, very wonderful tool. In fact, uh, listening is sometimes used as a metaphor for spiritual practice. If you know, uh, sometimes, I don't know if we have, we used to have in the other hall, a uh, Tonka, Tibetan image of Milarepa. Some of you know Milarepa, the great Tibetan meditator. He's always portrayed with his hand like this. Do you know those images of Milarepa? His hand is like this. He is listening. Or you know, uh, Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is known as she who she who listens to the cries of the world. Right. And so, listening is this very very deep practice to really listen carefully. And so, we'll bring in that. And then there are a number of other ways that we can develop in wise speech. Some of you know I teach, co-teach seven day retreats on skillful speech. We have maybe 30 hours of material. So I'm going to give you the best. <laughs> short time, <laughs> not 30 hours. You can come to the retreat if you'd like. But uh, we'll, give, we'll do some, uh, some short versions of that. And then we'll also bring in some further ways of working skillfully with speech. One of the things we do in our retreats is we integrate the contemporary discipline of nonviolent communication, which how many of you have studied that? Several of you have, yeah. So it's something that uh, we have found very, we interpret it as a type of mindfulness practice, or mindfulness-based practice. So those are a number of different areas, and there are actually other areas that we look at in the retreat that I haven't mentioned, but those are the basics. So I want to start with views, um, which is a very, very important area. And the problem isn't so much having a view, it's attachment to views. And attachment to views we 'll see is very closely connected to uh, being judgmental right? and so if we actually look carefully at when we get attached to views in our thinking and in our speaking it 's one significant way to work with the judgmental mind and If you attend to where you have attachment to views, and again we have to we have, i think we have to connect that with compassion right because we're going to be noticing attachment to views all the time, right and left, so to speak, right? And so we need to say, oh, I'm not a bad person because I have attachment to views. This is human condition, right? And, and so we're going to look at that. And again, we, w- we have to look at the question of what's the difference between attachment to a view and commitment to a view or let's say commitment to a principle, right? Those are not the same. I can be deeply committed to, let's say, being ethical, right? And is that the same as attachment? I don't think so. But we'll have to look at how we make that differentiation, right? That's a little bit tricky, right? Um, Okay, so ready? Ready to look at views. Um, Maybe first just uh, maybe we'll take take a few examples. Can anyone think of a view that you were attached to in the last 24 or 48 hours. And um, again, maybe if you can say it in one sentence or two sentences. Anyone want to give some examples? You don't have, don't have to give the worst. Please. Donald Trump is a dangerous person, Donald Trump is a dangerous person okay? And that may, again, that uh, and you felt some attachment around that view. OK, oh, please. Being right. Yeah, being right about something. Can you give one example? Um, just directions and somebody should have followed me because I know exactly where I'm going. Yeah. And they didn't, but so yeah. I knew exactly. Yeah, this, this person should have followed me. This person did not do it right. 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 OK, how many can relate to that example? OK, <laughs> OK, yeah. Yeah, a lot of of, see this really connects with a lot of the areas we're judgmental about, which is often moral or ethical in nature. We we judge because someone didn't do it right, and right often means what? My sense of what's right. I determine right and wrong, who's good and bad, et cetera. Right? Often. Okay, maybe one or two more examples, please. those two people really need to stop that bickering okay and and it can be again it's judgmental but you can hear the the view is that this should happen and i i'm attached to that you yeah. know maybe please Yeah, and, and what the, the view is that I should do it differently? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, learn. Yeah, yeah. So see, a, a close connection with the judgments. Yeah. My husband and I have to make a decision and take different paths to to that. Decision. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to discuss it because I know I'm right. Yeah. And he knows he's right. So, you're, so the, the view you're attached to is a view of how it should be done, how something should be done, right? and we get attached to it, okay? And again, what we want to look at is how do we know that there is attachment rather than just having a view, right? Because again, we, we have views necessarily. You know, it's part of being human. It's just, it is kind of parallel to the idea that being judgmental is not necessarily the same thing as making an assessment or an evaluation, right? That the judgmental adds reactivity. And again, attachment is one form of reactivity. So, it's, we, so there's some subtlety here. Okay. So we have a, anyone else wanted to give an example, please?
1: <laughs>
0: These people are over-consuming, Narcissistic and not properly green. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Please, maybe last one. Yeah. I just noticed on a like, positive side that uh, sort of attachment to a preference. Yeah. You know, like the, uh, his music uh, is always wonderful. Yeah. It turns me away from That's right. Yeah. So again, the attachment to the view can be attachment to a positive way of seeing it. I'm really attached to his music is so great right? right so it can be attached which means that if someone says you know um, he used to be better <laughs> and and you might notice that right? and you might get polarized right so this is what I'm going to invite you if you wish to study for the next week you want to study your attachment to views okay it's a way to get freer right? okay how many would be might be up for that Okay, very good. And you can also, I'll I'll say more. So this was a very important emphasis for the Buddha to really look at views carefully. And he really took the approach that views are pragmatic. They're useful pragmatically to help us. And you probably, many of you know the story of the Buddha saying someone who, would take a journey in a raft over the water and then would come to land. And if that person then carries the raft on his or her back after the raft has been used, that would be seen as foolish. He says, in in a similar way, all of these teachings are for the purposes of going to the other shore, so to speak. And that when you get to the other shore, you leave the raft you know, on the sand and you don't carry it on, on you. That was, that was one example. And there's also, there's also another story of the man who was shot by a poisoned arrow. And the Buddha said, what's important is actually to take the poisoned arrow out of the man. And that people who, after the person was shot, would be asking... What type of arrow is that where did it come from what kind of animal was used for the feathers let's really look carefully at that arrow and this was this was an example of the buddha's humor which doesn't always come through in translation Uh, but but he was basically saying our aim is really pragmatic we use views to help us to become free to see clearly but we want to be careful about getting attached to the view, or giving even too much attention to the view. <clears throat> uh, question of clarification, but let's wait till let's wait to discussion then. Okay. And he he actually criticized particularly getting attached to metaphysical views, to really views about the 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 broad nature of things. About and he there were you know in the in the text some of you know there are a list of questions which he found not profitable to ask about. You know, such as the, is the world eternal or finite? Is the mind and the body, are the mind and the body the same or different? What happens after death to the Buddha and so forth? He said that these were questions which really, in a sense, couldn't be answered and were not profitable to inquire into. And we could, you know, we could add questions of our time, you know, that are like that, you know, is there a God or whatever, you know, might not be so profitable to discuss, you know, I know, I, when I studied philosophy in college, and I also studied in graduate school, some, I had to study, you know, something, you know, which was like done in the Middle Ages, which were, which would be done if anyone's gone to theology school, which were proofs of the existence of God. Anyone study those in school? And I was so bored. I couldn't, it just seemed like, especially because I was already meditating and I said, oh, if you wanna answer these questions, better to do it through your experience. That's as, you know, anyway, that was my, my personal experience with that was one of frustration with getting so attached to the view that you go into incredible intellectual contortions so that was that was the Buddha's approach. It was really it was really a questioning of how one can get attached to views. And so we want to we want to really ask what is what is problematic about being attached to views? What why is that a problem? Clearly, it can lead to a lot of conflict between people. It can lead to a certain amount of suffering. Often we're not aware when we're attached to views um, and it really in a sense uh, takes us away from the experiential basis which is really at the heart of our practice that we want to be actually one, one of the benefits of our practice is that we try to keep things grounded um, in, direct, in as direct experience as possible in, in our thoughts, our sensations and we actually can track when we're making interpretations, when there are views, and and we can actually know, oh, that's a view, as opposed to I had sadness, right? And as we meditate, we can actually see how views develop out of more direct experience. We can see how sometimes very quickly um, we go, and, and part of our work in meditation and working with judgments, we can start to see this. I give the story of how when I worked with a boss I would, uh, he would sometimes, not, I thought, not listen to me, change the subject, and I'd get very judgmental. and As I did more investigation, I could see how, oh, that didn't feel good when he did that. Initially I just would go, he would do something and it would be like bam, bam. He would, he would uh, change the subject, I thought, not listen to me, in one moment and next moment I'd be off judging him, having a view. Why is he the boss? He doesn't know anything, and so forth, right? And so a lot of times we go very automatically to our views. And the meditative approach sometimes is to actually see what's there, to be able to see what's there. And and as I investigate that example, I could see, oh, that doesn't feel good. That was painful. A lot of times we go to views and get attached to views because something happened that was painful. That's a major reason we get attached to views. Or, and we often don't see when we're attached to views. A lot of those examples you were giving was there real awareness that there was attachment to view. So the suggestion here is that when you notice attachment to view, it becomes a starting point for inquiry. And this is maybe uh, an opportunity. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a few practices. I won't go to the, the dyad that I was thinking of so we can have some discussion, but let me give you a few practices that you can, you can use. And one of the practices is something that I originally learned from a man named Robert McDermott, who was uh, for some time president of California Institute of Integral Studies. And I learned this when I was, um, this was a while ago, and I was, um, at the time, I was teaching, um, I got a degree in philosophy and I eventually taught at universities for seven years. And I was invited to be part of a group called Revisioning Philosophy. These were people who wanted to bring the discipline of philosophy, which in its uh, meaning, the, in the etymology means love of wisdom. And if you had ever taken a philosophy course at a university, it seems to have become, if I could use the colloquial, being smart-ass. That was my interpretation, <laughs> if I can say it. That was, it was about, and that the, the real groundedness and really trying to become wise wasn't always there. And, and so we had a group of people, some wonderful people, about 25 people who were in this program called Revisioning Philosophy. And what got interesting, these are people who wanted to really come in and connect philosophy to spirituality and connect it to uh, being social and political and have it be less something from the ivory tower, right? Have it be practical, connected to the emotions, not overly rational. You get the idea? Good visions. And then in the actual meetings, I noticed after a while, When people had disagreements, they seemed to get attached to views just like everyone else, right? And, and it was very interesting. And a guy named Robert McDermott, who, who became a friend, he gave a practice, which I really love. And this is one of the practices that I'll invite you to do if you want to, which is he said, I'm noticing that all of these well-meaning people, when you get into have a difference of views, you, you look like everyone else, right? where's your wisdom, right? And he said, here's a practice. Whenever you notice a difference of views, let it be a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. Let it be a starting point for inquiry and looking more deeply rather than a starting point for war. What that meant for me was I notice a difference with someone else as you, I notice I'm getting a little bit into tension. I'm getting a little bit too uh, reactive, let's say. And so the the invitation would be to use inquiry in a few ways. So what does that mean? It could mean being mindful and saying, what's going on right now? What are my emotions? What do I feel like in the body? And if you're right in the middle of things, sometimes you need to take a break. One of the major meditative techniques that I encourage are bathroom breaks. These were not written about or talked about by the Buddha, but very important. <laughs> okay. um, so, so, I'm a little bit of a joke, but also serious. <laughs> uh, that uh, essentially, when you're reactive, it can be very helpful to take a break, to actually take a break and say, what's happening? Sometimes I would do this at meetings. I would become reactive, and I would just go to the bathroom and and say, "Okay, what's going on? And so you could use mindfulness and so forth. Uh, Another way to work with the practice is to uh, ask a series of questions. Why do I feel so reactive right now? Is there something to learn from this other person? You know, is there something in my past which is connected with being reactive? Why am I, why am I having this reaction? Not to be overly analytical about it, but just to see, see what's there. And so, to t- take this as a practice, even to have that idea, you see, it gives spaciousness, doesn't it? It no- you notice the tendency to get tight, and you relax some, and you try to look, and it also means that you can actually say, let me listen to what this other person is saying. Is there something valuable there? No, not at all. <laughs> but you can actually look and ask that question. So not an easy practice, is it? Can you remember this when, you, when things get a little heated or tight? So it's, a, it's not an easy practice, it's an advanced practice. And, can really, and, try, and it's really connected with this practice of listening Can you listen to another person? This is a radical practice to to be with others and maybe you suspend your need to make your own point. And can I really listen? What's there? What's there in the other person's heart? This is the practice and part of empathy. Can I listen to the other person? Can I see what's there in the other person's heart? Rather than, you'll notice when you're judgmental or when there's attachment to views, there's polarization, right? Empathy goes out the window. You can't really be judgmental or attached to views and have any empathy towards the other person. And do you know what empathy means? Empathy is this ability to, which is very much uh, wired into our brain. We have it in our brain, but we sort of lose it as we get older often. So empathy is this ability to have a sense of what the other person is feeling and a sense of what maybe what matters for the other person. And you can actually deliberately uh, train in this. You can be in a conversation and let me say, what is this other person feeling? And you can't do that and be judgmental and attached to views at the same time. So these are very interesting practices, right? Practices of listening, of being empathic. Now you want to you know, you do this in a wise way. Again, none of this means being a pushover. None of this means saying, do what you wish. I'm empathic. <laughs> right? It's not that. You know, We want to stand up for ourselves and so forth. So that's, that's another practice. Maybe I'll give you one more practice, which is to look for what are the main views that I'm attached to. Notice them. Notice what your top five are. Write them down, study them, ask yourself what they are. You know? And you can ask yourself uh, um, why am I attached to the view? You can ask that kind of question. And as you practice, the I'm really giving three practices. The first is to when you have a difference of views let it be a starting point for inquiry. That's number one. (laughs) Number two, and of course this presupposes being mindful of views and attachment to views, okay? So number one, let it be a starting point for inquiry. Number two, um, the practice of listening. And really make a commitment to listen. And number three, study your views, be mindful of them, make your list your top 5 your top 10 and and look at them and then of course in, in doing all these practices you'll be see you'll be necessarily mindful of when there are strong views and you'll also be will also be seeing how much attachment to views is connected with being judgmental and how much it comes into our speech and our communication okay That's the invitation for practice, and I'll do it myself. I've done a lot of work on this, but occasionally there's attachment to views. But everything that I just said about views is completely true. And if you disagree, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I think, so humor, very helpful, right? Humor, very helpful with looking at this whole area, right? Okay, um, but I think that's good. Let me see. Maybe I'll end with a quotation. Maybe two quotations. One is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, monk and teacher. One of his, he gave guidelines for his... Group called the Tiepian Order in the 1960s. These were people who were combining their practice with being engaged in the world, actually, at the time of the war in Vietnam. And he gave a set of 14 guidelines. This is one of them. This is related to views. Do not think that the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be more open to perceive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. I mean That's actually a good one to end with. That's kind of a summary, isn't it, of much of what I've said. And to take this on as a practice is is a way of bringing our inner practice into our interaction with others and in the world. So we have some time if there are any questions or reflections about anything I've said about any of the practices, please. Uh, Well, we'll use the microphone, okay.
1: I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the connection between the ethical principles and the views.
0: And the view? Yeah. Yeah, so um, looking at the relationship between the ethical principles or ethical guidelines and views, um, what? Like like non-harming. So that's a good. It's a good question. Um, the mind goes a few different directions with that. Um, so some of it would be to um, some of it would be to look at the ethical principle, like of non-harming, which is really the summary of the ethical precepts, and it's the first precepts for lay people, right? and um, there's a difference between following the guideline and being really attached to it. So that's one area that we could look in, right? In other words, um, I think the principle of listening and compassion still applies when we notice that we haven't followed the precept or someone else hasn't. So I mean, the, so there would be attachment to the ethical view of non-harming. If I became really, really so attached to the view that I had no compassion for someone who violated it, that'd be one one way that we would do it. Or we would we would still try to understand, have empathy. You know, it would be the way that we would. Uh, so we would watch out against being what we sometimes call moralistic, right? and more which is a kind of it so we can be attached to very good principles right we can be attached we we could see this a lot with activists right a lot of activists have wonderful causes get very attached to it at times right and and that can be a problem you know in in many ways and so we can see this with the ethical precepts i might really want to see when do i get moralistic when do i get attached and i can use this as a guideline and being really attached to it's different. Right? So that's probably the fundamental way to respond. There's some more subtle dimensions of it as well, but maybe I'll I'll, I'll stop with that. <clears throat> that's a great question because yeah, does because does non-attachment to views mean anything goes? It doesn't, right? It doesn't mean that. But it you know it can be a little bit confusing, doesn't isn't right? And so we still we want to follow ethical precepts because we're still Really guided <clears throat> by compassion and love and desire to be free, right? and so, and yet um, <clears throat> we want to do so. Uh, we really understand that more pragmatically, you know. And maybe it's a, you know, there's an interesting <clears throat> difference in a way between the more Western religions. And, and the more in the, the Asian tradition, some, some have said that there's much more emphasis on belief and on having the correct belief in the West. And so we talk about orthodoxy. Doxa means belief. You know, I mean, and ortho more or less means right. So having the right belief. And so there is sort of a tendency towards some attachment to view there. And it's sometimes said that the counterpart in many, not, not all, but many Asian traditions is orthopraxis. So the emphasis is more on the practical and less on this view or that view. That's the, the practice, practice is the center of spirituality, whereas sometimes in the West, not always, belief is the center. And belief is more prone to that issue of attachment, as many of us know maybe from our upbringing. Does that make some sense? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we look kind of broadly. Please. So um, thank
2: you for bringing up this question about um, attachment to views. I think it's really critical um, in terms of um, just, just the way that it's so self-reinforcing mm-hmm. that when we get attached to a view, then we get to be right, yeah. and then that just makes it stronger. Yeah. And at the same time, it kind of reinforces this idea that I know why this other person is doing what they're doing.
0: Yeah.
2: And, um, you know, I guess one question I have would be, um, why are we so attached to being Right you know i mean i don't i don't know anyone who is attached to being wrong
0: some people are <laughs>
2: <laughs> well they they often are wrong but i don't think they i don't think they think they're wrong
0: yeah yeah i think i i won't go too much with that but i think actually some people have conditioning from their family mm. where they're told that they're wrong and they actually are invested in that. It's like a, it's like a negative identity. Mm. So I think, but not to go, yeah. I think that is the case sometimes. But, but yeah, why, why do we, ha- we want to be right so much? Do, do you think it has
2: to do with attachment to self or self-clinging? Or... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: no, it's, it's good. It's a good connection to, to bring this up. We haven't, haven't talked so much about the sense of self and the sense of I was I was suggesting it when I said that when there's attachment to view, we have a very polarized relation to others. There's a very strong sense of I'm here, you're there, I'm right, you're wrong, we're different, and so forth. So there, I think attachment to view and being judgmental are very connected to our sense of self. And, and so one of the ways that I like to talk about this whole area, you know, in, in Buddhist practice, one of the focus areas is to really look carefully at the construct of self. And I think this whole area is a really great way to look more carefully at it because see how much that sense of self is wrapped up with being right, being judgmental. See what happens to yourself when you actually listen to others. It could be disorienting for some people. You know, some politicians, if they actually had to be empathic and listen to others, wouldn't be able to function, right? Not just, only politicians, and that doesn't apply to any of us. <laughs> okay, but they're an easy target to <clears throat> be self-righteous and to feel polarized from politicians, as I'm sorry. I don't hope I didn't just do that, but um, but yeah, we can really look at that uh, at that connection between the sense of self, the attachment to views, the judgmental mind, and really and really when you do the practices, inquire, see what's there, see see you know ask that question: What is the sense of self there? As I'm listening, as I'm not being so rigidly attached to view. Donald, maybe yeah, one or one or two more, please, Marty. I
1: I just wanted to say, well, first of all, thank you very much for this framing of this uh, uh, difficult and challenging area. Um, the three practices that you gave, yeah. I think they really they're important to do all of them because I think they counterbalance each other. Yeah. Um, if you're stuck in being right if you start having empathy and putting trying to understand why another person from their perspective feels they are right yeah then it helps to soften the place where you may be stuck in thinking Mm -hmm. that you're right and that that's the only way to look at it. And then by making a list of areas in which you're judgmental, you're just kind of bringing the whole thing into a realization in yourself of what the human condition is for all of us.
0: Yeah, and it it can give more room. I mean, all of this is giving space, for inquiry, really space to see what's there, space to listen, to, to open, to uh, relax, that, that uh, tightness. And one, one other word just of guidance, maybe last thing I'll say before we finish, is that um, in, in doing some of these practices, like in terms of listening uh, to someone with a different view, asking what's there. Um, really, exploring why am I having this kind of reaction? Start with examples or situations which, on a scale of uh, one to ten in terms of degree of difficulty, are more in the middle or at the lower end. Don't start with all the most difficult situations. so sort of build up, you know, like listen. Listen, you know, be at a meeting and listen to someone who, who has a different view, but it's not leading you to become deeply reactive. So that's just more a sort of a, a practical guidance to, to uh, do, work with a lot of this where it's not overly tense for yourself. And you'll see a lot, you know, you'll notice a lot. Someone was uh, no, exploring the different views, noticing where you're attached, reactive and so forth. Okay. Okay. Again, so how many are uh, open to doing these practices in the next uh, week? Okay, great. Repeat the practices. Okay. Um, first practice is to take a moment of sensing a difference of views as a starting point for inquiry rather than war. And so you can ask some of it could be to be mindful of what's there, what am I feeling, what's there in my body, what are my thoughts? And sometimes this would require taking a break. Sometimes you could do this after the fact in the evening, if this happened during the day. And asking, might I learn something from this person? Why is there such a reaction? It's really opening up the space of inquiry. That's the first practice. Second practice is to generally take listening to others as a practice. This could be connected with the practice of empathy, of tuning into the feelings or emotions of the other person, the sense of what matters for the other person as much as you can sense that. And again, you can do this initially where there's not so much initial polarization, where it's a little bit easier. And then work up to the difficult situations or more difficult situation. And third practice is to um, be mindful of where you're attached to views and develop your list, your top five or your top 10. Maybe we can compare those next week. I imagine there'll be some similar entries. especially in an election year. Okay, so let's sit for a moment. And then be with the intention coming out of the morning. Could be for the next week. Could be something else that got sparked for you. And in this traditional practice, the dedication of merit, we offer the benefits, the fruits of our time together, to ourselves, to each other, and then out beyond the boundaries of this hall, ultimately to all beings, which circles back and includes ourselves.